A number of years ago, when our oldest children attended a magnet public elementary school for a couple of years, they came home with some interesting papers, and I made note of it then. Attached to these materials was a letter from the North Carolina Board of Education. These materials represented a new initiative called Character Development and And I read one of the opening lines in the letter, which to my surprise read, this material is to help children understand the fundamental difference between right and wrong. That was wonderful. By the way, if you do any research as I did this past week, 20 years later, any concept of right and wrong has been, for the most part, scrapped. In fact, if you type in the word right, you'll get pages of information about how children need to learn and respect human rights Not a whole lot about learning how to define right from wrong. But this caught my attention 20 years ago. In fact, another line in the letter caught my attention as it defined self-discipline. It read, and I quote, Self-discipline is being in proper control of your words, actions, impulses, and desires, choosing abstinence from premarital sex, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, and other harmful substances and, and behaviors. 20 years later, that statement pretty much remains the same, except they dropped the abstinence from premarital sex as part of character development. But still, 20 years ago, when I read this, this material was obviously an interruption in the public mindset. This was going against the counterculture, so to speak, and coming from the North Carolina Board of Education, it was particularly refreshing. So I decided to to make a couple of phone calls. And finally got in touch with the office of the, uh, the chairman of the school board of education. And the secretary answered and I said, um, look, my children just brought home some, some really interesting information on character development. And I'd like to talk to the chairman about it. And the secretary said, uh, well, uh, she's in a meeting right now. And, and I could tell from her tone that she was thinking, oh, no, another irate parent calling in to let us have it. And I picked up on that, and I, I said, no, 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 no. Uh, look, my name is Stephen Davey. I pastor a local church. And I, I just wanted to call your office and applaud you guys for what you're doing. And she just breathed this sigh of relief and said, oh, well, then she's in meetings all afternoon, but let me give you her home phone number. <laughs> She'd love to hear from you. <laughs> I would call later, but only able to leave a message. And I said to the secretary, is there anybody I talked to in the meantime? And just, you know, leave my congratulations. So she put me in touch with the director of the task force for character development for the North Carolina State Education Board. And then after talking to this brave woman for a few minutes, I finally just said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And she said, I am. And I said, well, obviously from this material I'm reading, you don't have texts and verses, but it's clearly coming out of objective truth in, in, in Scripture. I said, but i got to ask you, how in the world did, were you able to get that material run through the photocopy machines at the North Carolina Board of Education? <laughs> don't they just automatically jam when they see certain words? And she laughed, and uh, she said, well, the truth is we are getting a lot of response, a lot of phone calls, a lot of letters. And I said, really? She said, listen. She said, our chairwoman's life has already been threatened several times for daring to do this. And I asked her to pass along my gratitude. Of course, the past 20 years have seen a great erosion, haven't we? have seen that incredible onslaughts against biblically defined virtues 
of genuine character and true wisdom. This program I called to commend 20 years ago has now become diluted into self-help and human achievement and human rights and don't offend anybody and be nice and don't ever question whatever culture says is right kind of terminology which we would certainly expect. I expected it 20 years ago. While our culture certainly today continues to lose its moral compass of what is right and wrong, while it is successfully replacing the idea of virtue with Values. I don't know how many times we hear about somebody's values. I don't really care what somebody's values are. That can shift and change with a wind, whatever they happen to consider valuable. What is their virtue? That's objective truth, which takes us ultimately back to the truth of Scripture out of which this material had, had come. In the face of that, though, while we're in the midst of all of that, especially in our, in our culture, The Christian can be encouraged and strengthened for whatever task God has called him to do by by just traveling back to the culture and context of the New Testament. When the Apostle John was writing his first letter, which we're in the process of studying if you're new around here, Jesus Christ had ascended back to the Father 60 years earlier. The Apostle John has witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. He's also witnessed the horrific persecution by Roman emperors. Uh, Among them would have been in his day Nero, who would cover Christians with tar, pitch, and light them for his garden parties. In spite of incredibly difficult circumstances, the church flourished. The gospel spread. Churches were springing up everywhere. The testimony of the believers had even found its home in Caesar's palace. Philippians chapter 4 verse 22. And even though the apostles would be all murdered, John, the very last to be alive, the gospel of Christ has challenged the citadels of human reason, political correctness, immorality, false religion, the values of human life, false religions, of course, and, and all those even to this day are challenged by the gospel. Not by some strategic, united movement, but our culture is impacted by the truth, one Christian at a time. One Testimony at a time. One local church at a time that will deliver the truth of the gospel and preach the truth of the word and disciple the believer and equip the saints so that we all go out of here as we break huddle and we take that testimony into the arena of life where God has placed us, wherever it is, medicine, technology, politics, education, construction, sales, you name it, as you represent the unchanging virtues of right over wrong, truth over error, light over darkness. You simply live and testify to the gospel in every arena of life. By every little subtle decision you make. Let me give you one fresh illustration from our assembly. Just one public testimony 
You know, no banners or signs, just a decision. I recently got a Chevy pickup truck. You can hold your applause. <laughs> That's not the testimony, by the way. But I was in a Ford pickup truck for a long time, got back into the Chevy, and people ask me about it, and I just tell them, look, I got saved again, so just forget it, all right? And let's just go on. Well, the owner of this dealership, the Chevy dealership, is a member of Colonial and one of our ushers. If you go over to his Chevy dealership on 401 and walk into his newly remodeled showroom and stand there and just listen, you'll hear throughout that complex's stereo system going 90 to nothing, Christian music. Christian music. I went over there the other day and, and a song by Casting Crowns was just knocking everybody over. And I talked to him about it. He said he's received compliments. People have noticed he's received criticisms, but he said, I own the place. I choose the dial. And this is my decision to make sure the gospel is heard. Isn't that great? By the way, what's, what's playing on your computer at work? What are your iTunes dialed to? You know, what, what do you... What do you have on the radio, in the, in the CD, whatever? Well, I mean, how long does somebody have to hang around you before they hear the whisper of the gospel of Christ, which is your testimony? That's how we're light in a culture of darkness. And I want to say something else as we get through this lengthy introduction. I think we need to be reminded that underneath our declaration and our testimony should be this undercurrent of joy and victory. Not, oh, is this ever the worst time in the world to be a Christian? Look at what's happening next. It's easy to do that. I find myself slipping into that every so often. It's easy to curse the darkness, right? Underneath, if you go back in time to John's day when they're dying, they're being murdered, martyred, completely marginalized. They have no right, no rights other than to die. Yet you find underneath their testimony and the way they declare the truth of God with this this current of victory. In 1 John chapter 5, John will use that word victory four times in two verses. And I'm going to show you it there as we go back to that text. But before we dive in, let me say one more thing. You need to know that the Apostle John's culture used the word victory. And they said it emanated from and it came from and it was represented by a Roman goddess. This was her name. The word for victory. Nike. We we, uh, pronounce it Nike. Victory. The Greek city Nicopolis was so named the city of victory when Caesar Augustus defeated Antony and Cleopatra to honor his victory. He named this city after that signature event. The Roman world worshipped victory. The Roman world was bathed with this. It, It basked in its power. In its unparalleled successes, it gloried in its strength. The slogan for first century Rome, that world would have been something like Rome rules or Rome wins. And yet this is exactly the perspective 
of John the Apostle toward Christianity. Even though Christians are being marginalized and persecuted, and John himself is going to be exiled near the end of his life uh, before he is martyred, uh, John the Apostle almost audaciously selects that word. He arrests it. He pulls it out of that world, and he uses it to define you and me. The first thing he delivers is this overarching, what we'll call the principle of victory. Let's pick up our study at verse 4, where he says, And whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That word overcomes, nike, it's the verb nikao. These derivatives are going to show up. In fact, you might want to underline the four appearances. For whatever is born of God overcomes, there's the first one, the world. And this is the victory, a derivative of the same word, that has overcome, there it is again, the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes, there it is again, the world. I mean, it's tempting to draw a little Nike swoosh in the margin of your Bible, isn't it? I mean, think about it. This, is, this really is the label for the believer. This is our verb. How's that for a brand? Think about it. In fact, I don't want you to ever forget it. It might strike you as silly, but I hope it comes back to your mind every time you see the Nike label. Every time you see the little swoosh. The Nike brand. It's the most dominant brand in the athletic world today, speaking of victory. Every time you see it, and you're going to see it today if you watch a little football, you just smile to yourself. Let it be a reminder that that verb, that brand, that word is your brand. It's speaking about your ultimate victory. In John's day, the word belonged to Rome, but the Spirit of God through John's writing has this audacity to claim it uniquely for the Christian. And I want you to notice, first of all, in this principle of victory, the original source. It isn't a Roman goddess. Look carefully. Whatever is born of God, whatsoever, you could translate that neuter, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. One translator puts it, whatever takes its origin from God needs triumph over the world. Kind of an archaic old rendering. Another Greek scholar references this neuter with a perfect passive participle. Whatsoever is born of God, this new life becomes the dynamic of victory over the world. So here's his overarching statement, his overarching principle. No matter what it looks like, in fact, John uses what must have been even more audacious to his first century readers. He uses the present tense. God is currently, right now, Winning. You can just add the words right now. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes right now the world. And you, and, and you think we are? It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't look like it. Well, the question is how far out can you see? Uh, how far is your vision reaching? Uh, We hear it sung and we applaud, but 
It was about looking toward that great day. Can we see that far? No matter what's happening in any culture, in any generation, whether it's ancient Rome or communist China or North Korea or Vietnam or North Sudan or America, deliver the gospel. Here's what he's saying. You deliver the gospel to someone who is then born again by faith in Jesus Christ and compared to that temporal empire, compared to what really seemed to be important, compared to all that coming and going, here today, gone tomorrow stuff, there's nothing compared to an eternal soul who has just come to life and that is truly the victory. That's winning. So who's, who's really winning in Rome in the first century? Nero or John? Who's winning today in communist China or North Korea? The, the communist leaders or the persecuted underground church? Who's the winner? Who's winning in America today? The revisionists who, who publish their new definitions of right and wrong or the Christian who holds to the Bible. John would say to us all, just as he did to the first century believers, it's time to refocus the lens of your spiritual vision. God has and still is today winning. And that really sounds odd, doesn't it? God's winning. We don't use the present tense. We use the future tense. Yeah, 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 God, God will win. John says God right now currently is victorious. I don't know about you, but this text arrived at just the time when I needed the reminder that God and everything belonging to him is actually winning. You see, it's all a matter of how you define winning or victory, genuine, true, satisfying, eternal, lasting, valuable, what matters really most kind of winning. So that the Apostle Paul will write, you talk about a testimony, talk about difficulty. I don't know what awaits me other than I know that it's bonds and affliction. How do you know you're in the will of God, Paul? Bonds and affliction. But listen to how he writes it. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. You see, John begins with that undercurrent of victory in this principle. Everything belonging to God wins. Now notice the believer's position of victory. John writes further in verse 4, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. John changes the tense of the verb here to refer to victory based on, rooted in, some past victory. And this is the victory, currently, that is rooted in something in the past which overcame. Now, John doesn't specify what that past event was, but it isn't difficult for us as believers to figure that one out, is it? It's probably why he didn't use any ink to fill in the blank. The promise of God was that the Messiah would come, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent in victory. 
Genesis 3.15. Paul would write to the Corinthians. Now I made known to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you currently stand, by which you also are saved so that you haven't believed in vain. And then he goes on to declare the, 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 the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the sum and substance of our faith. Our faith is in him then. So you're not trusting in some dead man. You're trusting in the one crucified who even before he was crucified would say this with utter confidence, using, by the way, that word for victory, Nike. He would say uh, to his disciples in the world, you are going to have tribulation, but take courage, for I have already overcome the world. He said that before the garden. He said that before the cross. Why? Because in the mind of God, he sees us already, in fact, to this day, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are, as a church, on a triumphal march from earth to heaven, inviting all who will to join us. Now, at at the time Jesus said that, it didn't look like Jesus was overcoming anything. Didn't own a house, had to borrow everything he owned. He was hounded. He's going to be tracked all the way to the cross and then the grave, and they're going to deny he ever came to life. Doesn't sound like overcoming. John says, you fast forward that tape, and he did come out of death into life. One author put it this way, it soon became clear, and they had to bribe the soldiers to perpetuate the lie. And many priests came to faith as a result, we're told in the book of Acts. Why? Because it was clear that when it looked like Christ was stung by death, death actually stung itself to death. As the Gettys hymn puts it so well, death was crushed to what? Death. The Apostle Paul would sing it this way, again using that that word. Oh death, where is your Nike? Where's your victory? Oh death, where is your stinger? Oh look who had won all along. That is an all... John is about to deliver probably the most surprising news of all to these beleaguered first century Christians. You have this principle of victory for the believer. You have this position of victory for the believer rooted in Christ and his past victory. Finally, there is this pronouncement of victory by the believer. Look at verse 5. And who, little w, and who is the one, little o, And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now John shifts back to the present tense. Who is the one at this very moment who is winning? Who is right now overcoming the world? And no doubt the readers in the first century would say, well, now John, we were with you about the principle and, and, you know, in Christ and his, his victory, but you're going to talk about us? This is our term? His early readers would have been amazed that they also would bear the name overcomer along with Christ the overcomer. And so he says, you are an overcomer because of your belief in Jesus as the Son of God. By the way, John takes one more divinely inspired swipe 
that the false teachers whose Gnostic teaching has been repackaged all the way up to this day in many isms. He began this chapter, you remember, by saying, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, that is the anointed Messiah, is born of God. See, the docetic Gnostics didn't believe that Christ could be human. He says, no, Jesus is Christ. He is the anointed. The Serinthian Gnostics in John's day didn't believe that Jesus could be deity. John dismisses them as well by this clear statement here in verse 5. The sum and substance of our faith and the one who is truly overcoming is the one who believes that Jesus is God the Son. So who is overcoming? The one who believes these truths concerning Jesus Christ. Is that you? If it is, you are presently overcoming the world. There are plenty of people, by the way, and this is the phrase that he brings out here, who in our day want God but don't want Jesus. And we believe in God. We're all about that. And we're spiritual. What about Jesus? Well, let's not talk about him. We'll, we'll take God, the Father, I guess they mean, but not Jesus. John doesn't allow that kind of separation. In fact, he's going to introduce the Holy Spirit in a verse or two. We'll get there. And you have this great declaration of all three persons involved in the gospel. The Son cannot be separated. The Father cannot be accepted without the Son. I thought of a way to illustrate this. A couple of things came to mind. If you called our home in a couple of days and you got a hold of Marcia and you said to her, look, we're having a few people over after Sunday services, you know, for dinner, and we'd like you to come too. My wife would invariably say, that's very kind of you. Let me check with Stephen and look at his schedule to see if, if we can make it over. And if you said, oh, look, no, 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 no. We just wanted you. We don't, we don't want Stephen to come. After that bad sermon he preached on Sunday, we don't like him anymore, so we just want you to come to dinner. What do you think my wife would say? My wife would say he's never preached a bad sermon in his life. That's what she'd say. So I hope she would. She'd say, no, if he's not welcome, I'm not coming. Let me turn it around. Imagine your neighbor saying, hey, look, we got tickets to the game. We want you and your family to come, but not, not your oldest son. What would you say? Well, that's a relief. No, you wouldn't say that at all. <laughs> you would say, look, if, you, if, you, if you're not welcoming him, then we're not welcome either. Listen, if you can't, with those silly illustrations, if you can't even eat lunch or go to a game, with somebody who rejects one member of your family. How in the world do you think you're going to get into heaven by accepting God the Father and rejecting God the Son? God the Father would say, if he isn't welcome, neither am I. See, John is saying that our victory comes when we understand that the Father and the Son are equally God. We believe it because it's declared, not because we've experienced or even understand that. Different in personhood Equal in essence. We believe in the incarnation of God and the bodily form of Jesus. We believe in the deity of Jesus as God the Son. Those, John writes here, who believe in that one 
are those who overcome the world. I want to stop and make something else clear. This has bothered me for some time, and I am so delighted to be able to study a text like this and clarify it in my own mind and for you. When John writes here about the one who overcomes, in verse 5, he is not writing now to a special elite group of Christians who have it all together. You know, we never miss our devotions. We're always smiling, always testifying. That they, they, you know, passionate, disciplined, you know, lives. Everything's just right. Those are the ones who could be claimers, claimants of this title overcomer. That isn't what he's saying. This isn't a special tag for the really consistent Christians who have it all together. You know, they're the Christians that when they get to heaven, they're going to get to wear the Nike hats and the rest of us got to wear Converse or Adidas or something else. That's not what he's saying. In fact, it isn't the amount of your faith or the consistency of your faith that John has in mind here. It is the object of your faith. You can have, you can have great, strong, consistent, declarative faith in thin ice and drown. You can have weak, inconsistent, trembling faith in thick ice and make it across. The key is the object of your faith. It isn't you. It's, in this case, Christ. Christ. Our belief is not in ourselves. Our faith isn't in our faith. Oh, I've got great faith. I've got faith in my faith. No. It's Jesus Christ. The object of our faith. Now let me just stop and say this for a moment too. There are many verses in the New Testament that challenge us to live consistent, pure, godly, passionate, disciplined lives. And when we get to one of those texts, we'll hammer away at it. This is not one of those texts that is divided in most Christians' minds. Well, those people are overcomers. I'll never have that tag. You go to Revelation 2 and 3. The overcomers are promised eternal life. In fact, misunderstanding this text has led believers, and I've got to say commentators, too, to think that, that, that everybody isn't going to be an overcomer after all because they haven't really lived you know, that perfect Christian life. Every Christian has a position of victory rooted in the past victory of Christ. And because we have faith in his deity, we are overcomers right now. I know I'm not being clear. This is John's third point in this progression. This is the privileged pronouncement. This is the declaration. This is the undercurrent of our lives. If anybody's confused, if anybody doesn't get it clearly, that we, none of us, are left out of this triumphal procession of the bride from earth to heaven. He makes it very clear. Look back again. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he. Maybe you could circle that and write your name in the margin of your Bible if this is true. But Sam, Susan, John, Billy, Stephen. He's an overcomer. She's an overcomer. Why? Because they believe that Jesus 
is the very Son of God. Based on your culture and your particular generation, it might not look like the bride of Christ, the church, is making a triumphal march to heaven, does it? But she is. It might not look like God is winning. But he is. It might not look like Satan, death, and sin have already been crushed. And their stinger taken away. But they have been. They already are. One author wrote, as a kid, I loved that annual mission Sunday when missionaries on furlough would come and bring special reports in place of a sermon. This author writes, there's one visit I've never forgotten. The missionaries were a married couple stationed in what appeared to be a particular steamy jungle. I'm sure they gave a full report on churches planted, commitments made, translations begun, but I don't remember any of that. What stayed with me is the story they shared about a snake. Don't you just love those snake stories? Well, here's a, here's a good one. One day they told us an enormous snake, somewhere between 10 and 15 feet long, slithered its way right through our front opening door and into the kitchen of our simple hut. The missionary said, terrified, we ran outside and searched frantically for a local who might know what to do. A machete-wielding neighbor came to the rescue, calmly marched in to our house and decapitated the snake with one clean chop. The neighbor reemerged triumphant and assured the missionaries that the serpent was out of commission, but there was a catch, he said. It's going to take a little while for the snake's body to realize it's dead. A snake's neurology is something akin to a chicken, I suppose, the missionary said, meant that it would take some length of time for it to stop moving around even after its head had been severed. And sure enough, for nearly an hour, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while that snake thrashed around, smashed furniture, flailing against walls and windows, wreaking havoc until its body finally understood, so to speak, that it no longer had a head. Sweltering in the heat while they waited outside, this missionary couple had felt frustrated over the whole ordeal, but also encouraged that the snake's rampage would not last forever. And at some point while they waited outside, the spiritual analogy struck them. And the missionary said to this congregation, Do you see it? Satan is a lot like that snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't act like it yet. And he's going to do as much damage as he can. Just don't forget, he's already a goner. The head of the kingdom of darkness has been crushed. The head of the kingdom of light has already conquered. Isn't that good? Beloved, the victory for us has already been won. Past tense, with our union now in Christ, we in the present win by our refusal to deny him as 
divine Savior and Lord. Think about this. Nike just so happens to be the brand name for every true believer. Father, thank you for the reminder through your servant, John, of this principle of victory, this position of victory in Christ who has already won. And our present tense pronouncement of victory that even now, even now, we win. There should be an undercurrent of victory and joy. Even your own son, Father, said as he anticipated the cross that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So easy, Father, for us to bemoan the darkness. And rail against every advancement of the lie of sin. How easy it is to lose the focus of our vision. There is not only coming this great day. Today, we are overcomers by faith in you as our living Lord. Father, help us to take the testimony of our victory and you, our Lord, into every arena of life. Let's close by singing uh, the words they came to mind as I studied this text, this great hymn text together, and this will be our benediction. My hope is built on nothing less than